I'm in so many bloody books and stuff. The whole thing reads a bit like a fairy tale story. In the beginning of time, there were three tribes, the fish, the birds, and the animal tribes, who constantly argued about which mob were the best, until each group called a meeting to decide. The animals said, we are the strongest, so therefore the best. Brother Platypus, join us, as you have fur like an animal, and poison like the spiders and snakes. I first heard about Francis Firebrace back in 2011 when Vice wrote an article calling him the happiest man in the world. There are these pictures of him hugging strangers in London and kind of engulfing them with his big white beard. On his website, Francis describes himself as a master Aboriginal storyteller, inspirational speaker, passionate humanitarian, entertainer and artist of the Yorta Yorta people. This, I thought, is someone I'd love to meet. How long have you known Francis for? I think it's got to be about 18 years. Wow. Yeah, it must be now. I met him in Australia, obviously Sydney. At least you're not going to be bored. (laughs) You really are not going to be bored. Good to know. Bless his Francis. Hello. Hello Katie and Greg. Greg. Why do I want to call Francis, you Francis, lovely to meet you. I don't Francis. do bloody don't do handshakes. <laughs> I just give the delivery man a hug as well. <laughs> Come on, sister. <laughs> Sit down, guys. It looks a bit rough, but it's lovely and soft. Thank you. Shall I start at the beginning and finish at the end? I'm in Walton-on-Thames, where Francis lives in a bedsit on a busy road opposite a petrol station. In the corner of his flat, a fish tank makes a loud, electric whirring sound. Pieces of Aboriginal art, mostly done by Francis himself, hang on the walls, and there's a pile of DVDs on the coffee table. Scribbled post-it notes litter the wall around his desk. I've come to visit Francis to hear about his life story, where he grew up in Australia, his life as an Aboriginal storyteller, and how he came to end up in this bedsit in Surrey. But I quickly realised that Francis isn't really the kind of guy to start at the beginning beginning and finish at the end. end. I think so. Took me a long time to know me, but I know me now and I like me. I'm a damned good man. Very good man. And... uh, but I was confused earlier in my life because I, I grew up with a white mother. My father was black and put it uh, in layman's terms, that wasn't a good combination because Australia was and unfortunately still is in a lot of places very racist. A lot of ignorant people. Yeah. Raci- racism is done through sheer ignorance. Mm. I got no idea. Once you understand that, once you get an understanding, which is wisdom, uh, uh, it changes your whole uh, views and definitions of what life's really about and what people are about because we are all connected. That's, it's a fact. And with animals and things. It's not airy-fairy, it's a fact. The bird tribe spoke and said, Brother Platypus, 
You have webbed feet, a bill of a duck, and lay eggs. Surely you should join our mob. We have the power of flight, and surely then are the best tried. I grew up around the Murray River area, uh, Murray River Basin area, and uh, the uh, waterways that link it. And my dad, of course, was a hunter and a trapper, so we lived on very good organic fish and stuff. You know what I mean? The fish and water creatures called out to the platypus, saying, brother, you must join our tribe. Not only can we outswim them others, but we can stay underwater. They can't do that. And you swim with us every day. So you know we are the best tribe. We grew up and we stayed mainly in the bush on the fringe of the Western Desert. When we moved from the bush down into, it wasn't a city, it was a tiny little village, the smallest village, and there I went to school for the first time. There were 40 kids there and I didn't know that many people lived on earth. I'd never seen that many people. So I always wanted to be a cowboy because when I moved into that little, little place, Guess what the only films were on in an open-air theatre and the bloody thing used to break down halfway through, as you wouldn't remember that, but you've heard of that. And I was fascinated. There were cowboys and they were shooting the bad guys. And Because I had to fight or fist fight all the time, I dreamt if I was armed with a couple of pistols, I'll pull them fast, boy, and down them. (laughs) Left school when I was 14 and guess what I become? A cowboy. I went droving, you know, um, sheep and cattle. Now the platypus listened to each group, and when they had finished, he said, I will consider what you have all asked of me, and in a short time, I will have a decision for you. Later on, when I got married, uh, I uh, had one child, my oldest girl, and I bought a wagonette and took my wife and child with me, and we lived in a wagonette, and we... We uh, travelled all around Queensland, New South Wales. I always loved to go walk about. Instead of going walk about, I went ride about a lot. Yeah. Now I go plane about and bus about. Walkabout is a rite of passage among Aboriginal men, sometimes now called temporary mobility, as the term walkabout has derogatory connotations in Australian culture these days. It's basically a period for young men to go on a journey during adolescence where they'll go and live in the wilderness for weeks or months to make a spiritual transition into manhood. So let's recap what we know so far about Francis. He grew up in a mixed-race family with an Aboriginal dad and a white mum living in the bush. They moved to a village and he left school at 14. Soon after, he became a drover or a cowboy He got married, bought a wagon and travelled the length of Australia with his wife and his first child. When we have farms, they're not little farms like this. You measure them and, uh, you know, I have 25,000 acres and stuff. The biggest place I worked on was 25,000 acres. That's a big, big property. And I used to sing at the top of my voice some of Slim Dusty's song, standing up in the saddle. But there was something exhilarating about riding horses. I don't know whether you guys ride, do you? Horses are beautiful animals. And I used to chase the kangaroos and emus just for the hell of it. But anyway, remember I liked to be cowboys? I thought I'm going to make a a film. I always wanted to be a filmmaker. So to be honest with you, I was as poor as bloody they come when I was on the farm. 
and I looked in the windows and could see little cheap movie cameras. I didn't have enough money, so I stole one. You're the first people ever told that. And that started me off. And uh, I started filming, uh, messing around filming. And I thought, wow, you can see it, it's working. And so I um, made little Western clips of my kids, you know, the boys facing up to one another with the guns on. I won an award for one of my films of my wife running naked through the bush. She couldn't see anything, but it's, you know, a bit arty sort of so. And that caused a bit of a commotion in the little club they had there, you know. And I made, and you've got a DVD of it there, uh, To Kill a Dinosaur, Blood and Guts and Shoot. Corny as fuck now, but at that time they just were blown away by an amateur making a film like that. This has got something to do with those men. What are they doing here? Thompson, he has a personal reason. You killed my father. I killed his father. And stop these sinners! Howard dies a thousand deaths. And also I wanted to be a pirate. And in 1984, after I lost my daughter, a 23-year-old daughter with cancer, that was a big shock. I had a bloody fancy house. So I made good money out of filmmaking in the finish. Um, nothing meant much to me at all. My wife and I broke up because of that. Um, but with my part of the money, I bought a boat because I wanted to be a pirate. So I became a pirate, that's what they call me. They call me the legend of Airlie Beach. First of all it was sarcastic and after a few years I was on and off there all the time. They'd say here comes their legend Airlie Beach, that's what they call this bloke. Come over here legend. And they, it's funny how things spread. Yeah. I used to come up with my boat all painted with Aboriginal, my dinghy with all Aboriginal designs, because I'm an artist as well. And I landed, I, I wanted to island hop from uh, one place to another and get right up to the Great Australian Bight and then island hop over to New Guinea and from New Guinea past Indonesia and then go to the Greek islands in this little boat. But I hit uh, a group of islands, 74 jewels of the north they called them. Freedom, freedom. Fresh air suited me down to the ground. I ended up staying there, and that's why they call me the legend of Ely Beach. You know, that started off, I rode ashore amongst all these boaties with their caps and their right shoes they got on, and said, Step aside, boys, a living legend walks among you. I told the people I picked up on the beach, I didn't charge them a lot, that's why they wanted to come with me, and I took them to this beautiful deserted place. Yeah one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And um, I charged them for taking uh, glamour shots of them. And then I started to get other work from other women that wanted uh, nice shots for their boyfriend. I was, it wasn't a bad photographer. And that's why yeah. my daughter now is a, has won a lot of awards. Yeah. It's funny how your kids take after you. It's true, Frances's daughter has taken off to her dad in many ways. 
Her Instagram page, Fire and Joy, has over 85,000 followers. Her biography reads, Teller of Stories, with a lightning bolt emoji next to those words. At this point, Francis pulls a photo album off a shelf. He gives me a wink and says, Greg, you'll like this. I'm taken aback when I turn the first page to find full frontal pornographic photos. Very 1970s, like, free love style images. And it's hard not to feel a bit uncomfortable. So this is a guy who's around my grandparents' age, showing me his catalogue of naked photos he shot back in the day. Yeah, just to give you an idea. Wow. So for, for the listeners at home, what I'm looking at here is essentially quite a lot of nude photograph- like photographs yeah, of yeah. women on beaches. But nothing... Um... Uh, bad or anything. No, no, it's kind of they're waving in that one. And this is you. Oh yeah, I used to always wear Aboriginal headbands. Yeah. Now I generally wear a hat. Yeah. The Aboriginal culture is born from a lot of oral storytelling. Yes, yeah, right? we didn't have any newspapers, no uh, television or anything. So yeah, and that was all uh, passed down from one generation to another. And is that something that's been passed down to you as well? Yeah, my father used to tell me that Jerry Jerry, the Willy Wagtail, uh, is a little black and white bird. They call him un- something, call him the Undertaker, bird, and he just dances like that. And then he'll stop and look at you, and then he dances, and his tail goes all over. It's a nice little fella, but he's uh, he said, uh, "Don't hurt that bird, but uh, hunt him away, hunt him away." And I said, "Why, Dad?" He said, "He bring bad news, that fella, bad news." Uh, listen and he, he, he creates stories and tell, makes trouble yeah have you got a favorite story the one i tell mostly I, I do have a favorite story i told it in scotland and holy shit that went so well i really tell i'm a good storyteller because i live it as i tell it you know um yeah left-handed and right-handed i like that story brilliant story very, it's spiritual, but it's very Aboriginal. I'm glad you guys come now because my memory's starting to go. Well, I'm 81 and I've been pushing it a bit and had that heart attack. So, mm. uh, I'm just trying to think of the name of that tribe. Oh yes, the great water tree grew in the heart of Malilumbi country. So high did it branches stretch that it reached up and. The uppermost branches disappeared into the clouds and the people knew that it must hold up the sky. And so it was far to the north lived Mullion the great eagle hawk who had powerful magic and hated all men because he didn't want men to have power over him. And so it was it came a time when Bunjil the eagle flew from the north down to the south and landed in the great water tree and the tree shook with his power. And the Wallilami whispered, if he does anything up there, he's going to bring the tree down and the whole sky will crush us. But that didn't happen. But Mullion built himself a nice nest. And every day he would go out hunting, he would call his shrill hunting cry, and a boy of the Wallilami would get sick and die. And this kept going for quite some time. So the elders held a meeting and they said, if this uh, goes on, we will have no boys to pass the culture down to. And so it was that um, they decided that very night under darkness, they sent two of their 
best warriors up, up and up the sacred tree they went until they drew level with the eagle's nest. And the eagle was dozing in the nest. They seen their chance, they fitted their walrus to their spears and threw those spears. But the spears were made of soft wood and they bounced off the feathers and the hide of the great bird who laughed and taunted them. And they hung their heads and climbed back down the trees and spoke nothing of what had happened. But it came to pass that there were two spirit brothers walking across their land. One was called left-handed because he threw his spear with his left hand. The other was called right-handed because he threw his spear with his right hand. And when they come upon the Willilamy's camp, they were so saddened by what they saw that they decided to help their people. So they uh, painted their bodies in the sacred ochres of their tribe and they began to dance, to chant and to sing their magic. And the west wind heard their call and brought a huge singing, stinging dust storm that turned day into night. And under the cover of this darkness, the two men climbed the sacred tree. Up and up they went. They too grew level with the eagle's nest and they raised their spears and their spears were made of hardwood. And when they threw them, they pierced the feathers and the flesh of the great bird who screamed angrily and took to the air on its great wings. But now gone was its power. No longer could it harm the Willoughby. And the two brothers come down from the tree and rejoiced with the people. And they stayed a while. They showed the people there how to make spears from hardwood, how to harden the tips in the fire. And from then on, people would say, beware of the Willilami. They are great warriors and they carry spears made of hardwood. And so it was that from that moment on, the people began to live in peace. It's a simple little story, but that's ages since I've done that, but once I got a bit of a role on it. Yeah, that was beautiful. So, well, I guess I'm interested to know what brought you from Australia to the UK, where you are now. I ended up just going with the flow. I got up on stage and killed them, of course. Uh, they never heard anything like me. They loved it. And Jane was my manager then. She... Uh, started to get a flood of requests for me to go to school. I said, I'm not bloody living in England. You know, but bloody hell, I don't want to live. She said, just stay for a little while. Um, 17 years later, I'm talking to you, aren't I? But I travel. I've done shows in Iceland. Vietnam I've done shows. Alaska. Iceland was an interesting place. Yeah. They love me over there too at the finish. There are people that appear a bit cold, but you come and give them a hug and it always, uh, you know, breaks the ice with people. Quick way to, um, to let people relax once they get over the initial shock. Yeah, especially <laughs> like English people. Yeah, quite... it's a cultural thing. There's no better or worse people, that's impossible. Yeah. We're different, but we are products and unfortunately often um, victims of the way we grow up. See, I'm not frightened. I get up on stage when I pick up the mic and generally say, aren't you people lucky to have me here? And they 
go like that, and then they start clapping, and they end up like bloody liking me. Yeah. And at the end of it, I, I always say, okay, brothers and sisters, uh, I'm running on Aboriginal time, which means I start uh, when I feel like it, and when I'm ready, I just finish, and I'm decided to finish. But love you all, big hugs to you, and talking about hugs, when I come down off this stage... If there's any Southern English in the audience, you better start bloody running because I'll hug you if you stand there. And it's I use humour. And you'd be surprised how many people, they start queuing up wanting a hug. The biggest group I ever spoke to was in Sydney uh, in the year 2000 at the Harbour Bridge Walk, protest walk. I wasn't scheduled to do anything. There was an estimated quarter of a million people. I'm there in the front and I just waved to one of the Aboriginal girls, up, women up there that knew me, and, she's, and uh, she said, oh, Uncle Francis here, get him up here, get him up here. I said, no, no, your sister, you're doing a good job. Uh, not that I was terribly worried, I wasn't prepared, but it doesn't matter. You don't, I don't have to, I always tell people I don't have to be prepared because I don't have to memorise the truth. I said, you watch your politicians, you tell I'm not a politician, I'm not reading off a piece of paper that somebody else wrote. That's all true, isn't it? So, um, yeah, that was interesting. And I got up and I recited a poem. I write uh, some nice poems too. I recited a poem about uh, what happened to our people, but I said at the end of it, so brothers and sisters, come give me your hands. And we'll all share in the dreaming of this ancient land. And I loved it. When I went down in the audience, there was just a sea of faces, if you can imagine. They started uh, touching me and women were crying. And I thought, Jesus Christ, you know. But then I began to realise you've got a lot of power. And uh, if you say it from the heart and you mean it, I think people uh, pick that up. A short time went by, and the three groups gathered outside the hole by the creek where Platypus lived. And out came this wise little creature, and he spoke to the three tribes, saying, I will not join any of you as a separate group. However, I will join you all, as no tribe is better than another. And like myself, said the Platypus, you are all special and unique in your very own way. Like the Aboriginal fables he tells, it's hard to tell fact from fiction in Francis's life story. He's been a cowboy, a pirate, a filmmaker, a soft porn photographer, and now a storyteller. But to simply label him the happiest man in the world doesn't quite cut it for me. Yes, he does love hugs, but Francis's mission is more than that. It's to spread openness and to break down racial prejudices and to teach the idea of global citizenship through his stories. Francis Firebrace is beyond categories and in many ways beyond logic, like a platypus. Thank you so much to Francis for inviting us down for a chat. Thanks also to my producer Alana Chance, to my assistant producer Katie Callan, and to Keith Drew from Rough Guides and Georgina D. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, then please do give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you hit subscribe now, it means you will not miss an episode. See you soon.